Hi, my name's Matt Kirkegaard and I'm the editor of Australian Brewers News. Welcome to the first episode of a new podcast, Brewers Perspective. Brewers News created the first Australian beer podcast way back in 2011. As the Brews News podcast has evolved, we discuss the news of the week and also the backgrounds to some very interesting industry people, probing their experiences in the industry. If you haven't heard of it, you may well be interested in the industry news and insights those shows contain. Just look for Radio Brews News on your favourite podcasting platform. However, very regularly we get asked to tackle topics that are quite niche and very technical. These are topics that we would often really like to explore, but maybe a little off topic for the Radio Brews News channel. That's one of the reasons we created the Brewery Pro channel, as the home for content that has higher value for technical brewers and people in the brewing business. But maybe that audience is a little bit smaller than our regular audience. By way of example, the first episode next week is titled, There is no five second rule in brewing. And that looks at brewing cleanliness and sanitation. It features Aaron McGarrity from Ecolab, but as you'll hear when it drops, it's not looking specifically at chemicals, but instead it looks at how brewery design and planning and good practices and systems can make sure your beer is as good as it can be. But before we do that, I wanted to introduce you to our hosts to give you a little bit of background on the people who will be anchoring the discussions that you'll be hearing in coming weeks. Anthony Clem is a brewer with more than 20 years experience in the brewing industry, which he entered after studying chemistry at QUT. He did a couple of research and development jobs in areas such as surfactants and marine paint, but his first brewing industry job was working for Guinness in West Acton in London. As you'll hear, he was part of a team trying to put widgets into Guinness bottles. Since returning from the United Kingdom, he has worked for Lion at West End in in Adelaide, starting in their laboratory and working at various other roles within the Lion group, such as packaging quality, brewing team leader, brewer at Napstein and Forex, and most recently he was a quality brewer at Forex before leaving that role to start as the head brewer and general manager of brewing at the Hemingways Brewery in far north Queensland. He's a member of the quality committee of the IBA and on the judging panel of the Royal Queensland Beer Awards. He recently started a business as a brewing consultant with the intent to give brewery owners the capability and insight to live their dreams of building a craft brewery creating consistently great quality craft beer. The second host is Marcus Cox. He was recently hired by Newstead Brewing Co. to add some fundamental quality structures to that business, but he quickly was appointed to the role of head brewer in March. His career as a brewer commenced at a Victorian microbrewery, Three Ravens, in 2003, which, as you'll hear him admit, he took with next to no experience, but he quickly positioned that brewery as a leader in the second wave of microbrewers in this country. He was also part of the founding team at the Thunder Road Brewing Company in Victoria. At the commencement of that position, he had the opportunity to design, install and commission the Thunder Road Brunswick site. And they're some of the topics that we'll be covering in upcoming weeks as well. In 2014, Thunder Road entered beers into its first competition and was awarded Best Medium-Sized Brewery in Australia at the Australian International Beer Awards. In August 2016, he relocated to Pittsburgh in the United States, where he became the head brewer at the soon-to-be-established Mindful Brewing Company. He also helped to re-establish and became vice president of the local Master Brewers Association of America chapter. He's a frequent flyer to Japan as a judge, and he was the first Australian to judge at the European Beer Star Awards in Munich, and he's been a member of the IBD for 14 years.
So they're the hosts of the upcoming Brewers Perspective podcast. Please enjoy my conversation with them and my introduction to them. Marcus Cox, Anthony Clem, welcome to Beer is a Conversation slash Brewers Perspective. Good morning, First episode. Matt. Good morning. Marcus, so we were just very quickly talking off mic that you, you're a, uh, the first time on Beer is a Conversation. Anthony's had a couple of appearances, so we might start with, uh, with you. How did you get into the brewing industry? I know that um, in, in my intro I've given your bio, but you know, tell us a little bit how you actually came to be a brewer. Uh, I didn't really take the homebrew route, so there's probably a deviation there. It's, it's long enough ago that people that weren't formally qualified could still get gigs as, as brewers. Um, I was working in hospitality. To be fair, you can still do that now, but one of the things that we're going to talk about on a brewer's perspective <laughs> is uh, whether that's still the safest route to do it in the very competitive environment. So, But anyway, sorry, I, I didn't mean to cut back, you off. Back in the early 2000s, it was... <laughs> it was it, safe. It, it was the only way. It was the only way. Yeah. Um, so I was definitely part of that. I was working in hospitality, and um, one of the bar flies at a pub I was working at, I was a bar manager... Do we want to name check that? Is it still around? The Peacock Inn Hotel okay. in Melbourne, in Northcote. Um, first venue in the area to have Coopers on tap. And it was such early days that it was, um, if you don't like the beer, it was money back. <laughs> okay, wow. And this is, you know, 2000, 2002 I'm talking about. So 130 years into Coopers, they still had to offer a or you, that was my, venue. That was my yeah. personal guarantee. Okay. Um, yeah, we had to hit our rebates, so... <laughs> <laughs> So there's a. I'm just making a note that that's another thing we can talk about. But so, what saw you jump the bar and go to go into the brewery? I did do a little bit of home brewing, but it wasn't very serious. And one of the bar flies was kind of like a drinking buddy and a mentor. Uh, and he'd do been. Do we sp- want to name him? Uh, he's or probably her? he's probably long past to be honest. Okay. Um, yeah. Um, like a proper seven year old bar fly. Right. Um. He was friends with the guys at Three Ravens and they at that stage had their informal invite only little bar downstairs under the engineering company that, that owned it. Yep. And he invited me down there for a beer. Um, and it was very informal. There was no expectation. Um, I hit it off with the guys and I think within two weeks we were talking about when do you want to start work. Because they were brewing, they were engineers who were brewing themselves at that stage. They bought the brewery because it was going to close. Is that no? The, well, if it was going to close as a, a plasma factory or something, um, I think actually the tanks, the original tanks, were for bovine growth hormone. <laughs> um, so it was, it was more an option. There was good c- CIP um, done. Yeah, you'd have so. Um, a very good clean. <laughs> so, um, so it was very much coming off a. Very low base in terms of experience on my part, being zero. Getting the gig pretty quickly, I was just the right side of 30, so there was you know, a perfect time for a career change. Um, they, they hired me on, on Future Promise more than the reality, and the extension of that was the second or third day. I'd been also one of Mountain Goat's first customers at that same pub, um, okay. just for package. The yep. draft Mountain Goat back then was a dream. Um, so I knew those guys through the sales routes. Um, so I spoke to Dave and the second day I worked at um, Three Ravens, I actually spent it at Mountain Goat getting the idiot's guide to how to run a brewery. So after four or five hours down there, they sent me on my way with some beers and that was, that was the tuition. Coming at it from that background, which is one of the things we'll be talking about over, the, uh, over this series, is were you able to make good beer from the start and you know, or did you make a lot of mistakes and that was your very hidden in those days uh, uh, learnings? Could have, could have been more hidden. Um, 
So those guys were making beer by themselves. So the engineering company was under under the guidance of uh, Ben Patterson. Um, he was the head process engineer at the time. Um, they were getting busier and busier, mainly with work up in in Queensland or in Queensland, sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, with oil and gas really starting to take off back then, they were, they wanted to keep that side project working. So you know, I, I was working with a process engineer and a team of other en- engineers, and if I wanted to fix or change some pipe work, we had a, a, a pipe drafts person on staff. It was, and they were they were happy to let me run for six or twelve months, figuring it couldn't get any worse until I got the tra- uh, until I got the traction to actually start to make some improvements. And how did you learn? How, how did you sort of self-improve um, in, in, in that environment? That's very much my model. I just look at things going around and around and around. And after four or five times, I know how they work within reason and I, I can offer improvements. One of the best decisions I ever made was to get somebody that had marginally more experience than me on board. So Matt Inchley, uh, who's now a Keiju, joined pretty quick. Mm-hmm. And he ran, he performed most of the brewing activities and I stepped back to be more of the brewery manager. So I had even more latitude to teach myself how to brew and about the industry. And where did you go to learn? Because that was still very early days of, you know, sort of internet online availability of information. This is all on the job. This yep. is all working with the en- engineers, um, some short courses. Some, I got to know Pete Aldred pretty well, um, which, which came very, uh, was very handy later on. That was it. Uh, yeah, as you said, the internet didn't really exist as, a, as the tool it does now. So you've never done formal study? Because I know you've worked for the Master Brewers Association of America. and things. Have you ever done any formal study? Not, not to any, um, anything above a certificate level. Okay. You did go on to work for Thunder Road and you were part of the team that set up uh, that, that, that brewery, which for a lot of craft people, they might be, you know, uh, there are views. It's a brewery that is a polarizing in the purist community, but it's fair to say that Philip is a um, who, who founded it is fastidious, um, and it, you would have been put through your paces, put through the ringer, satisfying yeah. him um, that that you could do quality both install procedure and and beer. Yeah, that was, yeah, I managed to spend six years, six and a half years at Three Ravens. So it was a very different Marcus that walked out the door to the one that walked in. Yep. Um, so relatively mature. Um, we'd done a lot of contract manufacture at Holgate. I hung out with the, the Vami guys at that time. The mm-hmm. Victorian Association of Microbreweries was kind of a, around. So I had a much better industry perspective. We were starting, Three Ravens were starting to sell up, up as far as Brisbane, all the way down around the coast in, in Victoria. I also managed to not be hired by Philip, so thinking back, that probably helped. <laughs> so a- Andrew Dunn, who was in, involved in the uh, Fat Yak kind of conception, mm-hmm. um, probably more from the brand side than anything, um, was the leader of the team, and he hired me, so I kind of snuck in under the radar. Uh, Philip had hired an American brewer, um, Mark Harvey Kenny, yep. um, and they were looking for somebody that would be complementary to him, so... Um, I didn't have to deal with Philip in the first month and I was kind of on the payroll before he realised. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Um, I might bring Anthony in now um, because, Anthony, you came at it from a, a slightly different route and without, again, like it's not a loaded um, description, but you studied chemistry um, and worked in uh, surfactants and marine paint before getting a job uh, with one of the... Uh, uh, larger brewers in in the UK and came back to Australia and worked for Lion and uh, there are a lot of 
craft beer people who would be sort of saying that's an appropriate job for uh, surfactants and marine paint. Um, unfairly, um, I, I might add, because it, you, you were a senior quality brewer for Lion um, and making some very good beers, uh, champion uh, beers, and then went to Hemingway's. But you came at it from a very different perspective into the industry than Marcus did. You had the science background and applied it to brewing. Is that a fair... Yeah, pretty pretty fair assumption, Matt. So I guess, you know, chemistry degree, you know, one of those things where, you know, growing up as a kid, I needed to figure out how everything worked and chemistry was sort of an outlet there. Um, but uh, I guess when I left... When I left university, I didn't really have much of an idea of what I wanted to do, but R&D was really interesting. So I, I did you know, do a couple of R&D jobs and then you know, got, the, got the gig in uh, when I was over in the UK, got the gig at Guinness for like, you know, it was just a small contract, but you know, got me into the industry. And what was that doing? We were actually just setting up a little pilot um, production line, pilot packaging line. They were... Uh, trying to put Guinness in bottles at that stage and they developed like this rocket widget thing for the bottles that sat in the neck of the bottle and um, you know, pushed nitrogen into the top of the beer when you opened it. So uh, it was just setting that up and they just wanted you know scientists. It was like a bad joke. It was like <laughs> two Australians, South African and a Frenchman and you know, we we're all working together on this little Guinness project that they wanted in their R&D facility at Acton there. So, And did that ever see the light of day? Because I don't remember it. It did, but I think it was only very, very brief. Uh, they were like 330 mil bottles and they did have the rocket widget and they did have a full sleeved, so they looked nice and black and they had the, uh, the creamy head on the top, but I don't think it ever... Uh, was any showed any longevity? Uh, okay. Unfortunately, they invested a lot of money, and we had a we had a great time setting it all up and getting it involved. But uh, yeah, I don't know how successful in the end it was. <laughs> had you brewed before that? Like, had you done home brewing or been involved in oh, brewing? Probably not a lot of home brewing. Just like Marcus as well, I dabbled. We did, you know, just a few things. Every at uni. Uni student does Every it. Every student kid. does it. Yeah, <laughs> especially when you're doing a lot of process chemistry and stuff like that at uni we were like oh yeah we've got to give this a go and you know we'd do beers and ginger beers and um you know poor uni students just something to have a couple of tallies before you before you head out on the town those types of things but uh that was that was pretty much it I didn't really do a lot of home brewing and I still probably don't do I don't do a lot of home brewing because I've always had access to, to to kits and uh bits and pieces where you know you could do enough um, you know, exploration and experimental type stuff to to not do it at home. So what was it about the brewing industry that, because it, it sounds like you went to this Guinness job as a person with the requisite skills to take on that job as opposed to being lured into an industry. Um, what was it about the industry that's seen you stay there for over 20 years? I guess, uh, you know, you can only drink so much surfactant and paint, really. Um, no, it's the. I think it's the people. Is that a code word for um, hazy IPAs? It could, yeah, it could be. Pretty, pretty chunky Sorry. hazy IPAs. No, uh, I think it's the people within the industry. I've just uh, spent, you know, the last twenty years meeting and working with such amazing people that I just. You know, so down to earth and genuine, and um, you know, all got a common interest. We've just love great quality beer. 
you know, it's always been about the people, I think. And, um, you know, in the end, sharing a great quality beer at the end of the day is just the reward. So, uh, yeah, that's why I've stayed. <laughs> well, it, one of the reasons that uh, I was interested in working with both of you and all of the guests that we're going to be having on is the different approaches your different entries into the industry, but then you're two people who I learn a lot from uh, from the because of your focus on the the, the technical side of brewing and you know the, the quality side of brewing and you know your your, your views on that. Um, so I'll, I'll start with this question: with both of you coming into the industry with such different backgrounds, what do you think is more important: the art of brewing or the science of brewing? When I think about the art of brewing, it, it gets boring pretty quick, so I'm probably going to lean towards the technical side. But How do you mean boring? Well, it, it becomes technical. Um, so that, that you know, wizard world of mm. brewing and all the hopes and dreams of everybody uh, fade pretty quickly. And, and the first thing I think of is, what am I trying to make? How much money have I got? Who's going to drink it? What does it have to look like? Does it ascribe to a style guideline? So for me, it's, it's almost 100% technical. Mm-hmm. The dream of the beer normally comes from the marketing department and they have a lot of ideas that never make sense. And it's, it's up to you to probably pick those that are viable as, as a brewer. But yeah, definitely the, the technical brewing is, is for me pretty much the whole thing. How does that figure into the business? Because you, you, that, that's the thing, as we've discovered, well, as, as I've observed, you can't divorce the story and the marketing and the dream and all of that that has to be infused in the consumer's mind. Yeah. Does that sit in the bottle of the beer or does it sit on the label of the beer? It, it depends where that bottle sits or yeah. that can sits. That's, that's one of the things. So who the market is and where, where it ends up being sold. Um, uh, for the most part, it's on the outside. Uh, it's, in, it's, it's part of the, the person that's drinking it. Um, so that, that brand story and that identity set flows through there. But there's a point where the liquid has to be what it says on the can, what you thought it was going to be, has to go to the right person, has to have cost the right amount. It uh, has to be fashionable or not fashionable, depending on the kind of brewery you're working for. Um, I, I find myself very open to working in different kinds of breweries with different expectations of the product range. Mm-hmm. I don't. When I was living in the States, I had to unlearn a lot of things to make hazy beers. It's a completely different mindset to what I'd been doing for 15 years. So I had to start to just compartmentalise things and, and take them away and saying, you know, those other 99 beers that I've been, styles I've been making they're not going to work here. I need to kind of work out. And I had the latitudes being in a, I was in a brew pub situation that time to, to work through the first 10 or 20 hazies before I got it right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then even what the prevailing logic was for how to make them isn't what I went with. So I guess that, that was still technical, but it was probably a little bit looser because the concept wasn't necessarily built off a, a solid technical base. Anthony, how about you? Science or magic? I think you know the answer. But, uh, well, why? You know? No, I see the magic and the art being in in the brand and the creativity of putting, you know, of putting recipes together that you know are going to appeal to people. But for me, it's the it's the fundamentals of you know the technical side of brewing that you need to get right in order to provide that trust to the consumer. So the brand is providing a level of trust to the consumer and behind it, in my opinion, should be a very technical and very process-driven 
process where you're consistently creating that that um, flavour profile that you're trying to achieve and that the customers and consumers are, are wanting. So when they go pick up a, a can or go to their local, that they, they're trusting that that is what they're going to get when they, when they ask for that. So, uh, you know, for me, it's, you know, it's, it's a lot about the science and that's my sort of background with, you know, the IBD study I've done as well as all the chemistry. But, uh, you know, I think those fundamentals are what make up, you know, great and consistent quality beer. With both of you having worked in the industry for you know two decades, you've, you've essentially been involved. I regard the modern craft beer movement um, as really starting in two thousand with this little creatures, which really popularised it. There were breweries, you know, in the eighties and the nineties. In the late nineties, we started to see the early flowerings, but it was really little creatures for me that brewers um, were in, people were inspired into brewing. And so, twenty one years um, of craft beer in Australia. We've seen such a rapid evolution of the attitudes to it. You know, in the early two thousands, it was the craft beer revolution, and we're making something different. Malt water, hops, and yeast. And as we've seen, we've seen business models. We've seen what's acceptable within craft change. We've seen so many changes of in attitude. Where do you both think that we are sitting? You know, in the evolution of craft beer, have we almost closed the circle? back to where it was 20 years ago or you know, Anthony where are where, where is the craft beer industry at the moment I think it's certainly moved away from the the purest uh, approach where it was you know malt hops um, yeast and water uh, I'm glad you could uh, name those four key ingredients <laughs> yeah, look, <laughs> if I couldn't it'd be there'd be a bit of a worry uh, no it's certainly moved away from that in in that you know the guys are being a lot more creative in the way they put uh, the way they put beers together, uh, and you know to me it seems like it's rapidly changing all the time. We're not, you know, we're introducing new beer styles, and you know we're not looking back at the you know, the old beer styles where you know the the brewers are really looking to create something different for their consumers. So, uh, you know, it's really interesting and uh, exciting times uh, in that you can get lots of different, uh, lots of different flavours when, you, when you're cracking open a beer. But, you know, I do see that we are having, you know, some fundamental quality issues still that, you know, is not, is not something we really want to see, you know, going forward because consumers will then potentially go back to something they know rather than try something new. But, uh, yeah, interesting times. We're adding, we seem to be adding lots of different things rather than the, uh, the fundamentals. <laughs> um, but, you know, and that can be good and can be bad. And I might come back to that, um, uh, particularly uh, with, with, with reference to Lyme. But, Marcus, how about you? Because, uh, you know, we, we've seen craft beer, one of the foundational styles of craft beer in in the early 2000s was the IPA and there was that romanticized story of that this is a beer that was brewed to um, send and it was really borrowing a 200 year old story and trying to legitimize this thing that was had no semblance 
into the, the original IPAs. Um, but it was a lovely story that sold the vision of craft beer. Is that a fair? Very much so. Okay. Yeah, and it was summed up for me once when I was visiting the UK and I, I jumped on the train and, and went to Burton-on-Trent to visit. Yeah. And there's nothing there. Well, not Ed, Pete Brown's um, uh, Hops and Glory is a tremendous you know, recounting of the IPA story and uh, selling the vision and the romance of it, but then the... You can't drink the tap water and yeah. there's, there's one brewery and it's Bass and they have a kind of... Um, uh, down in Victoria, we have a Sovereign Hill where they have the, the guys made out of straw that are animated by clockwork. It wasn't what I was expecting. <laughs> uh, it was incredibly flat. You could still see the train lines and understand the uh, industry that had taken place there. Yeah. Um, but it, uh, it was a moment in time. And that moment's changed. But we're seeing that even with some of the, you know, inverted commas, sour styles, you know, where people are saying this is a Berliner Weiss or this is a, you know, um, a traditional style when it just because it's got lacto in and it's been soured, you know, the, the pH has been reduced. But then that's about the only touch point with some of those traditional styles. And yet we still feel the need to weave this narrative around something that is a modern invention. Well, from from a, a winning awards point of view, if it fits the style guidelines, you you call it whatever you have to call it to win. <laughs> if if a, a supermarket's looking for a particular subset in a category, mm. then you can convince them that's what you've made. Um, just to go back quickly to the IPA, yep. there was a moment in time when, you know, looking from that 1850s period all the way through, where the hopping waned based on availability and cost, and then at that period you're describing the early 2000s, it, it went nuclear. And once something's gone nuclear and the, you, you're left in the remnants, now the, the pursuit is, is lower bidness. Mm. And where it was 60, 80, 100 IBU numbers going around just a few years ago, now you're more likely to find a lead IPA brand sitting at 20, 30 or 40. Mm. Um, and it's more about the, the aromatics of the hops than the bidness. Um, the, the mineralic profile is less important. The colours back to very, very pale generally. It's a, it's a very blurry situation, but yeah, with IPA specifically, it blew up and then it was reborn. Without getting too philosophical, are modern IPAs still IPAs in that understanding that IPAs were hop-driven, bitter you know, beers? That was a moment in time, and you know, as, as Pete Brown's book and, and Mitch Still, mm. Still's book have referenced, um, that, that was a very small window. It was the result of you know, transport meeting industrialization and having access to those particular materials for and particular purposes associated with that at the time. It hasn't been like that for a very long time. So the idea that things are constantly changing is, is very interesting. But as I said, instead of the, the rationale being, I guess as brewers now, we have access to everything. So, or at least we think we do. So a lot of the decisions, you know, you have this idea that I'm in the candy store and I can make beers with whatever I want. I don't mean just necessarily crazy things, but hop varieties and malt varieties. You're not tied into the stuff that got grown down the road. Uh, like you would have been in particular periods and generally speaking it's not particularly efficient to ship water so most countries and and cities and zones tend to have their own beer manufacturing so trying to bring those styles to that centralized manufacturing in one particular area is probably the target Mm. um, just for shipping and logistics and everything can go on a ship now and get there as a grain instead of get there as a beer it's a little bit naive to, to suggest this but is that you know, should we be using more 
local ingredients to have a distinctly Australian style. I mean, Australia grows hops. We, uh, you know, one of the largest barley growers in the world, um, and yet you've got brewers importing hops and you know floor malted, uh, you know, English uh, malts, and to try and replicate styles. Should we be using Australian ingredients and seeing what we can create? With that, both from a national perspective, but then also in terms of the, you know, we, we talk about sustainability and so many brewers talk about, you know, putting solar panels on the roof to lower their carbon footprint. Should we just be not shipping dry ingredients around the world, um, do you think? It's, it's very challenging. Yeah. Um, I found myself straddling the, the midpoint where you use enough of the local stuff to kind of build the beer and then for the nuance of the flavour you bring in, what you need to, to do that. Um, again, with this this requirement of, of every brewery to make every style of beer, at least in theory, um, it, it makes, in particular in Australia, where the, the traditional style beers have fallen away and nobody really has any points of reference for them. I've had the pleasure of resuscitating beers from, from 100-year-old books before. Thunder Road. Uh, Correct. Uh, yeah, Phillips said... Uh, interest in history uh, there was some really interesting stuff that was done there uh and we you know we, we had the brewer's notes from the side panel of the the brewery log it was an amazing set of documents and we made those beers with the permission of, of his family it wasn't particularly good <laughs> so you know it got us a tap at, at young and jackson's in the in the middle of melbourne um because nobody else could offer that beer and the ye oldie thing was very much the selling point and it was a novelty you know. and it was very much a novelty um and that was all australian malt. we we took grain and uh made our own amber mold at the bakery next door um we used predominantly not particularly sexy australian hops and some uk stuff that was very old as you said a novelty um we don't have the brewing tradition here is you know from the consolidation period it's all it's all lager beers yeah um, there are three probably unique yeast strains that smaller brewers maybe don't use, which would be something to use if you wanted to. Codename yeast A or yeast B, whatever they call them, in the big breweries. Without that history here, I think it's very hard to have that lineage. Um, and that coupled with the, the demands that every brewery makes every style of beer, you're kind of stuck. How much of recreating an old beer style is um, you know one of those tropes you know that it's attention getting it's interesting you've got a story behind it but as you said they're not necessarily going to sell outside of that one-off um, novelty factor how how much do you think that some of the styles that are going through a upswing at the moment are just modern equivalents of that where they don't they're not recreations of historical historical styles Histi- historical historical. Style as well, yes. um, but they are um, just a blip because they're momentarily interesting but not very good some of them are smaller blips than others yeah. and, and brood IPA is obviously the, the the scapegoat for this you know that aspect of the conversation yeah. I'm disappointed that brood IPA didn't I, I actually thought it should have had legs oh, I'm a big fan yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so you know, talking about the hazy beers, there's an incredible diversity amongst those. Um, as I said, they're, they're technically challenging to make. They're different to make to every other style of beer. They're one of those things that, that developed organically in a region and then it went through the, the kind of homebrewing level of certification with the BJCP style, guide, style guidelines. And then obviously more recently became part of the, the general, you know, formal professional brewers style guideline set through the Brewers Association. Um that kind of stuff's a little bit more of a blip. It'll probably be rationalised. Um, I thought the exploding can situation might have uh, accelerated that move a little bit. No, because it's to your be fault case. as a consumer because uh, you haven't refrigerated your and, beer. And, you know, the carbonated re-fermenting milk model is often <laughs> cited. Um, again, when you sit down, 
from the brewing point of view and you say, okay, I've been tasked to make this type of beer and you write the brief for the beer, if you are going to make something that's likely to explode, you try and make it a small explosion, you try and limit the area of impact. Um, and, you know, these are the things you tick off when you're defining a product's um, or its definition, when you're making the definition of a product. Up. Okay. Uh, are we going to see beer cans with little Fence. pressure valves? <laughs> yes, like... Pressure relief valve on the <laughs> yeah, yeah. beer can. I mean, I'm assuming that when the first person came up with the idea of champagne, they had some packaging issues, <laughs> and then they moved on to that particular packaging model that's that stuck around for a couple hundred years. Yeah, um, but they're very yeah. thick, very heavy bottles. Um, You're already paying ten bucks for a can. It's it's only eleven dollars at that point. <laughs> Anthony, I, I'm going to step back to the question I was going to ask you because you know, looking at the malt water hops and yeast. Um, I think it was 2008, Lion... Were you working with Lion in yep. 2008? Yeah. So when they developed the Natural Beer Promise, that, again, was very early days of craft. Um, interest was... You could sort of see the writing on the wall for mainstream beer, and they were trying to not craftify beer, but counter some of those perceptions, some of the promise that craft beer had about you know being better and purer and things like that and so Lion came up with this natural beer promise where they took um, as much as possible uh, tetra hops out of beers you know they only used five ingredients and they were open about sugar but you know talking about it and um, Han Dry couldn't because it used enzymes and it was regarded as not being a natural product it was very forward thinking and very ahead of its time but there must have been a little bit of you know from a from a brewer's perspective who would have been in seeing some of those decisions and feeling the negativity that craft brewers were pointing to these soulless big brewers when you see what some craft brewers are willing to do now there must be you know a part of 2008 Anthony that's face palming himself um, at how quick at how much the industry's changed I do vaguely remember copying a fair bit of fair bit of crap uh, about you know some of the gear that we used to add as big brewers <laughs> to uh, two beers to you know make sure that uh, maybe head retention or you know, something like that is you know is kept at a premium and the beer looks fantastic and in, tetra the, hops in the glass. It was taken out of forex gold Absolutely. and it wouldn't retain its head because the tetra hops was important um, with a beer of, of that character in being foam positive. Absolutely. Tetra, I mean, a small amount of Tetra Hop, uh, and there was only about 5 ppm, I think, in there, in that beer. But that that alone was enough to give it, you know, extremely good head retention. And so when you do pour it across the bar in a glass, it looks fantastic. Uh, and to achieve the same level of head retention you have to go to a lot of uh you have to do a lot of different things to to ensure that you do that without head you know without adding tetra hop so um you know in a very large brewery that is very heavily automated that's quite difficult to achieve uh in a very short period of time so overnight we were asked to just remove you know all the things that make it look and <laughs> look fantastic uh and and do something different. So that was that was really challenging, but it was also very interesting in that, you know, we were, you know, we were doing some heavy thinking about exactly how we could modify the brew house or uh, make some changes so that we could, you know, maybe soften the boil and you know increase, you know, leave foam positive proteins in 
in solution and you know, do lots of different things to make sure we were we were you know keeping those beers at at um, you know the visual that the consumer was expecting but in the end that didn't happen but when you look at that that was in response to this narrative and rhetoric that to the craft industry was using about being better and purer and things like that. And you look at a lot of those same things now oh, brewers yeah. are embracing oh, for exactly the same reasons and with the same justifications that 10 years ago the industry was against. I was, I was absolutely shocked. I was reading an article, I can't even remember what magazine it was in, and a, a brewer was describing how they were adding Tetra Hop and they were a craft brewer. And so... Well, hang on a minute. Oh, brewed IPA using enzymes. Yeah, yeah brewed IPA using the same enzymes <laughs> yeah. that Han Super Dry uses to uh, produce low carbon, and you know, pretty much the same as what the US US guys were doing for all their low carb beers as well. So, uh, I, I think it comes down to you know, there's a fair bit of creativity out there, and it's availability of raw materials as well. So, if everyone's got that availability of those raw materials then you know, someone's eventually going to go, oh, what happens if we do this? Is everything fair game these days? Is there anything oh, that's I not I get craft? the impression that everything is fair game <laughs> at the moment. Marcus? Because I know you laugh whenever I say uh, you know, at, at the moment or that we're in a post-craft, post-craft. world. And it's, uh, yeah, post-craft. I can, I can definitely feel that. One of the kind of anomalies with me is I started my brewing career at Three Ravens working for chemical engineers. So they were always very open um, to do whatever was needed it was normally in, in the scheme of us fixing process defects like head retention. We would add a head retention additive because we'd identified a problem and we gave it the big band-aid and we tried to wean ourselves off that over time. So that, that was very much the way they thought and that's the way they taught me to think. So was craft a lie? Like the idea of craft, was it a lie that we willingly told ourselves? Well, no, I mean, you know, once a week something blew up and we all got covered in shit and, <laughs> and your deliveries were late because the, the $5,000 van broke down and that, that's craft. Yeah. Um, well, that's punk. That's punk. <laughs> somewhere in between. Well, was, yeah. was, was craft the punk of its day where it had a very brief meaning, you know, but then very quickly became something else? It's a, yes. Okay. I, I could definitely see that happening. There was a, a moment in time, um, and then that was distorted very quickly. And, you know, things like Napstein, for me, completely threw that up that, that time ago. Um, being out at that brewery, drinking that beer from the, at the winery. Um, drinking well, Anthony, that, you were a brewer at Napstein. Yeah, it's brewer at Napstein Drinking that, that one keg of beer that was there, that was <laughs> the best tasting beer in the world, the only <laughs> place you could get it. I think the, the brewer that was there at the time when I visited um, had to make a pull a delivery off a truck and he left me alone with the tap so that was that was a pretty good trade-off yeah (laughs) Uh, but you know that obviously being a line company at that stage and and having that ownership making this high level of craft beer and then with it making a lager interesting interesting uh, was mind-blowing you know one of my views that i've espoused in listening to brewers on both sides of the the argument is something like pasteurization which still hasn't been adopted by many craft breweries in their own venues some of them are doing it when they're producing elsewhere um, because their contract partner um, pasteurizes but there's still a consumer um, rejection of it there's still a lot of brewers who want to passionately argue against a tool like pasteurization as being not craft and I've got this theory that anything that small brewers can't do 
because they can't afford to or they don't have the resources or they don't have the means to is what's not craft. As soon as they can do something or as soon as they see a benefit of it, that slides very, very quickly. You know, what, what, I'm throwing that out there as my controversial opinion. Maybe not the only one. Well, so pasteurisation is a scale. So mm. a lot of those negative associations are made from a time when high adjunct beers that were expected to have a year and a half shelf life were pasteurised to hell. Um, and that the base beer was commodity driven, so it wasn't necessarily the fanciest ingredients, and, and the pasteurization level was was thought up to ten or eleven. Um, not you know, it's just in terms of the volume mm. uh, yeah. scale. Um, so negative associations, uh, probably with the US leading and smaller, maybe regional city based European breweries, uh, that the cost of pasteurizations come down radically. Um, you still need a very clean beer often with low levels or control level of solids, very low DO, dissolved oxygen, to get a good pasteurization. And if you're pasteurizing at the lower end of the spectrum, the flavor impacts off a good base beer are effectively zero. Um, some places will pasteurize and then bottle condition after that, for example. There's there's a lot of different combinations. Um, but the, the price of pasteurizers at the moment, it's it's very affordable for a one million, two million litre brewery. Mm-hmm. And do you think as we see more breweries grow through that, you know, we are seeing breweries grow um, and reach that one, two million litre uh, mark. Do you think we will see more of them start to adopt? You think if something's going to have to give. Um, you, you can't just keep being reactionary with product recalls forever. Um, sterile filtration's cost inhibitive still. Uh, the consumables aren't, aren't, aren't great. The wastage isn't great. Um, and it coming to the need for a broader market physically um, and type of uh, outlet. To, to get in every store, if you need to go all the way to Perth, you're probably going to have to do something magical like pasteurised to make the beer stable from there. Or, as some other breweries do coming the other way, refrigerated supply chain. Um, but you need to be pretty big and have a lot of trucks on the road to, to make that viable. I agree. I think it's going to become more and more commercial. And you know, as people are distributing further and wider from their local areas, uh, the expectation is that, you know, in order to maintain your brand, you know, you're placing a lot of trust in in a brand name and people expect good things from it. If you're sending it all around the country and it's not stable, then, you know, the variability in flavour profile is going to be significant. Um, so that's the idea of, you know, pasteurisation. You essentially make sure that you've got a stable... You've got a stable beer that can get to consumers a little bit further away than your local area. So I think as your distribution of uh, these smaller brands increases, then they're going to need to consider what they need to do to stabilise their beers and maintain that consistency of flavour profile. Now, just looking at the time, probably need to wind this introduction up. Um, Brewer's Perspective, uh, Brewers News has been broadcasting or podcasting for over a decade now, looking at sort of discussing the news and some of the industry-wide things. This podcast is going to be much more technical, looking at a Brewer's Perspective over the industry and looking at things. What do you guys, you know, you guys are giving up your time to uh, host and create this podcast. What are you guys hoping to do uh, with a Brewer's Perspective? Well, I think it's it's basically support the industry I love, like that. I mean, I've been in the industry for a long time and I intend to stay here for a lot longer and I really want to support the industry uh, that I love so much and the people in it as well. So uh, I think we're in a 
we're in a time where you know I know education is important and there's not in the, there's not a lot in the way of education uh, going around uh, for for brewers uh, I know we've got you know the TAFE course is, is fantastic we've got the IBD qualifications but uh, on the whole it's you know learn on the job which is great but uh, you know it can it can also introduce some other normalizations that are that are just considered oh well that's what we do mm. uh, so you know, I think my my aim is to just increase the level of education and support uh, we offer to um, the people in the industry wanting to make great quality and consistent great quality great um, craft beer yeah, look, something similar, being um, personally mature in the industry, very much a fan of, of giving something back. Um, but also the, the extension of that is you can't really um, brew by Googling or, or brew by Reddit. And um, it was something I, I saw when I was living in the US, but also working now at Newstead with a young team. Um, there's a lot of stuff you forget people don't know. Um, a lot of fundamentals. People have... The industry's expanded at such a quick rate. Um, a lot of people have migrated into jobs that maybe they're, that they're not ready for. They're a year or two out and they're in those positions already. So just obviously Anthony and I are very open about our backgrounds and probably from what you've just heard about pasteurisation, we, we you know, <laughs> like particular things. We like stable beers and beers to be defined. <laughs> and that's, that's you know purely by coincidence what we're both into. But um, the idea that just filling those gaps in knowledge um, giving people access, not this, you know, an independent source of information. Hopefully, we can provide, um, and it's it's going to be topic specific. And uh, you know, obviously, we're not trying to be a diploma course in in beer. We're not trying to be a master brewers course. But as Brewers News does, we like to ventilate issues and get a variety of perspectives um, uh, about it. But we'll certainly be working with you know all of the formalised training um, providers to encourage people to go through them but it's from my perspective as a editor of Bruce News it's getting that variety of discussions because there is no one size fits all solution to anything in the industry as we've already talked about and hearing with you both and our the, the guests that we've planned coming from very different perspectives in the industry raising some of those topics that people can then go and ask the questions themselves. Yeah I'm hoping we have lots of practical discussions you know lots of you know, little gems, hopefully, that are in there that uh, guys that are listening, brewers that are listening can go, oh, yeah, oh, I'll, uh, I'll look into that. And neither of you are selling anything. Yeah, well, uh, sorry, no. <laughs> you, you, you do consult. Um, so, yes, uh, and w- there will be a link to that, but you don't sell anything. Um, so we'd, it's, yeah, trying to be as non-commercial as, as you can and still run a, a, a business, but uh, that that's... The, the line that Bruce News always uh, wants to walk. So, uh, yeah, so uh, hopefully there'll be some uh, interesting opinions raised. So, uh, Anthony, Marcus, thank you very much for joining me for this Beer is a Conversation, very first episode of uh, A Brewer's Perspective, and uh, look forward to our chat, our very first chat, which is going to be looking at uh, chemicals in the brewing industry. Yeah, cleaning chemicals. And that was your suggestion, uh, Anthony. Yeah, it should be, should be an interesting one. I, I think it is it's one of those things that has been a little bit normalised. You walk into breweries and you see things and go, hmm, that's not ideal. <laughs> but I think everyone's like, oh, well, that's how it is. And we'll see. So that'll be uh, the, the very first episode uh, next week on uh, A Brewer's Perspective. Thank you both. Thank Thanks, you. Matt. And that was Marcus Cox and Anthony Clinton. 
If you'd like to find out more about the Brewery Pro podcast, you can subscribe on your favourite podcasting platform. And we will also be starting a Brewery Pro Facebook group specifically for feedback on this show and discussion about more technical topics. You can also email myself or the hosts at brewersperspective at brewsnews.com.au. 